If you're looking on the Pew Bible in front of you, you ought to find it on page 1299. Just a moment ago before I came up to preach, we sang, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Uh, some of the most famous words ever written in the English language, and it's such a personal confession. Uh, but, but John Newton, the, the man who wrote that hymn, had a lot to say about what effect those words ought to, to have on the way we interact with others, with both believers and with unbelievers. He described the life of a believer by saying he believes and feels his own weakness and unworthiness, and lives upon the grace and pardoning love of his Lord. This gives him an habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit. Habitual tenderness. That's the result of knowing that I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once was blind, but now I see. So, If we truly believe that the Lord uh, has saved us in that way, if we truly believe and feel that I am a wretch and uh, that I am weak and unworthy on my own, that I was once lost and blind. And if I see myself in need of the grace and pardoning love of Jesus, then it should produce in me a habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit toward others. So Newton gave this analogy to explain that, to illustrate his point. He said, imagine that a company of travelers are, are going down a road and they fall into a pit. One of them gets a passerby to draw him out of the pit. He said, now he should not be angry with the rest for falling in, nor because they are not yet out as he is. He did not pull himself out. Instead, therefore, of reproaching them, he should show them pity. A man truly illuminated will no more despise others than Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were opened, would take a stick and beat every blind man he met. If you've been pulled out of a pit, you shouldn't be angry that there are other people who are still in the pit. Or a person who has miraculously regained their sight should not go around beating blind people with a stick because we once were in that state. That does not mean that we downplay the seriousness of being in the pit or of being blind. It means that we show pity and that our desire is always to bring others into the state of rescue and sight in which we now find ourselves by the grace of God. I want us to have that in the back of our mind as we read this morning because we're going to hear Peter describe the certainty of judgment for those who remain in a state of faithlessness and unrepentance, for those who remain in the pit, for those who refuse to receive sight, there is a judgment coming. But that final judgment is not for us to exact, and there is always a biblical warning let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So let's read together in 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 4. Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, 
For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let's pause there and let's pray together. Lord, we ask for your help this morning. I pray, Lord, against any spirit of self-righteousness, Lord, that any of us would uh, be puffed up by knowledge this morning. But Lord, I pray that we would be brought low by your word, that we would be humbled by who you are, by what you have done, and by what you have sworn to do in the future. And Lord, that this would affect how we see ourselves and how we see uh, those who are perishing, those who are destined for destruction, uh, Lord, that we would have compassion and humility by your Spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is a passage that, on the one hand, is very straightforward. The big idea screams at us off the page. So I want to just kind of cut straight to that. The big idea, I'm going to summarize it by, say that, by saying that God will judge the ungodly and rescue the godly. He will judge the ungodly and He will rescue the godly. There were false teachers in Peter's day who were denying that truth. They were saying there will not be a future judgment. And so because there won't be a future judgment, the ungodly won't be judged and the godly won't need anything to be rescued from. And whether directly or indirectly, they were um, promoting conduct that was out of step with the gospel. So Peter's basic premise is very simple. Judgment is coming. It may not be immediate, but it is certain. As he said at the end of verse 3, passage we read last week, he said, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So just because that destruction, just because that judgment, that condemnation has not happened yet doesn't mean it's not certainly coming. God will judge the ungodly and He will rescue the godly. And so to make His case, He gives three examples from the Old Testament in which God judged the ungodly and rescued the godly. So this whole passage is one long if-then sentence. If this happened, if God did this, then He will do that. These former acts of judgment are like signs that point to the final day of judgment. In fact, it even says of Sodom and Gomorrah that they are examples to us of what God is going of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So I want us to walk through those three examples and then we'll try to draw the same conclusion that Peter draws from them. So the first example is in verse four, where he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of uh, judgment. Now, the New Testament uses several words that are all translated. They tend to be translated as, as hell. And I think we tend to have a sort of mixed up view of what hell is. We, we have more of a, an idea of hell that we've gotten from Dante and Milton, as, as great as those authors were, and from pop culture and things like that. But when, when Peter says here, that God casts sinful angels into hell. You should not necessarily think of what he's talking about when he says hell, what's translated as hell. Don't think of that necessarily as 
an eternal place of, of torment. In fact, it would be helpful not to think of this as a physical place at all. Now, don't get your pitchforks out. I'm, I'm not denying the reality of hell. Uh, there will be what God calls in the book of Revelation a lake of fire, which will be an eternal, inescapable place of torment. And uh, these sinful angels whom God has judged are ultimately destined for capital H, hell, in that sense. But for now, they are being kept under divine restraint until that judgment takes place. When he says that they have been cast into hell, the word he uses implies a state of, of prison and restraint. He even clarifies, and he says that he committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So there, this is something that the Bible consistently teaches about Satan and about demons, that, that as, as Peter said in 1 Peter, our enemy, the devil, is, is like a roaring lion. He's prowling around seeking someone to devour, but he is not free to do as he pleases. Satan can't just go around and just kind of do whatever he wants, and God sits back and says, oh no, please don't do that, Satan. No, they have been committed to chains of gloomy darkness. You, you see this in, in the book of Job, right? Where, where Satan and these, these demons come to God and they ask permission. Can, can, we, can we attack Job? Um, and God, God gives them permission. So whatever it is that Satan does, he does under the ultimate authority of God. So the spiritual forces against us are powerful and hateful. They're seeking to devour, but they are limited by the unrivaled authority of God. So that's the first example that Peter gives, that, that God has kept, He has judged ungodly, sinful angels, and He is keeping them until the day of judgment. The second example comes in verse 5. If He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, let's put ourselves in Noah's shoes for, for a moment. I think, you know, this is one of those stories that, that Rebecca and I sometimes joke about that it's weird that this is the story that we tend to tell kids because when you really think about it, it's dark, right? It's really, really dark. But I also, you know, looking back on my childhood and thinking about this story, I used to always kind of think, you know, in terms of a timeline, how long did it really take Noah to build the ark? I mean, it couldn't have taken that long, right? But then you think about how big this thing was. He didn't have, um, he didn't have power tools. He didn't have cranes to help him and that sort of thing. And um, depending on how you interpret Genesis 6, it, it could have taken up to 120 years, or if you interpret it a little bit differently, it at least took decades. We're talking... 50, 60, 70, 80 years plus to build this thing. So think about that for a second, about how many years are going by where Noah's waking up and he's going out there and he's working on that ark and people are walking by and saying, man, what's he doing? <laughs> what's he doing? It's never flooded before and he's out here building a massive boat. And I want you to think about Noah. Do you think it's possible that he ever looked around and thought, man, I don't want to go out there and work on that ark today. Man, I've been doing this for 40 years now, you know, 50 years now. These people that walk past me every day, they are so completely unburdened. 
by the prospect of this flood. They, they just, you know, they just live for today. They do what they please. Their lives are so easy because they don't have the burden of knowing what I know. And uh, they're, they're not threatened by it. Their lives are so simple. They just live for today. I don't know if Noah ever thought that. That's just kind of some sanctified imagination. But I do know that there's a man named Asaph who did think that thing. He, he writes about it in Psalm 73. He said, My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph said, I'm looking around, I'm trying to be the righteous person. I'm trying to be the person who lives for the Lord. And I look around and I see people who are arrogant and who are wicked, and yet they are prospering. And their lives seem so easy. He's, he's so candid. He says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, you know, it looks like this is totally useless to try to be a righteous person because I'm trying to do the right thing and my life is hard. And they're living wicked lives, doing whatever they want, and yet their lives are easy and they're increasing in riches. So it's, it's not always easy to live for the Lord, and we don't need to pretend that it is. Trying to walk in faith and in godliness will sometimes make your life more complicated and difficult in the short term. I sometimes joke it would be so much easier in this situation if I weren't a pastor because I could just, I could really say what I want to say. We had a situation a while back with one of our neighbors where he did something that made me very angry. And I wanted to go over there and, and tell him a thing or two. But I thought, you know what? I wish I could. I wish I could go over there and tell him exactly what I want to say. I wish I could punch him in the nose. But I've got to worry about the fact that I'm, I'm an ambassador of Christ. So in that moment, I couldn't do what I wanted to do. It would have been a lot easier. It would have felt great to do it, but I couldn't. So that's why we need an eternal perspective. Asaph goes on to say in Psalm 73, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So here's what Asaph does. He looks around and he says, you know what? I'm trying to do all the right things. I'm trying to live for the Lord, and yet my life is so complicated and so hard. And these people who are so carefree and they do what they want, and they live wicked lives, and their lives are easy, and they prosper. But he realizes, I was thinking like an animal. I was thinking only, he says that, I was, my, my thoughts were brutish. I'm only thinking about what's right in front of me, and I'm not thinking about what's to come. And what is to come is that it is good for me that God would be near. Surely the Lord is good to Israel, to those who are upright in heart. And these people whose lives right now are so easy and so carefree and they don't have anything to worry about, they do have something to worry about. They just don't know it yet. They're headed for destruction. So going back to Noah, those outside the ark far outnumbered the people who went into the ark. Peter points out here and in 1 Peter that there were eight people Noah and seven others. Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives who went into the ark. Eight people. And how many 
thousands or millions of people were outside the ark. And those outside the ark, for those, who knows, 60, 70, 80 years that Noah was building that thing, they were so carefree and they probably thought Noah was crazy. But everyone inside the ark was preserved. No one outside the ark was spared. And that, Peter uses that as an example to point us to Jesus and to point us to what He has done and what He is going to do. Everyone who is in Christ will be preserved from the flood of God's wrath that is going to sweep over the world one day. And no one who is apart from Christ will be spared from that judgment that is to come. The third example comes in verse 6. Peter says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, I just want us to pause there and say, I will admit that I have been very perplexed by that description of Lot before. And even this week as I was studying this again, and I wonder, Peter, are we reading the same Old Testament? Because if you go back and read Genesis 19, and you can do that this afternoon if you want, uh, Lot does some things that are good, and he does some things that are absolutely awful. I mean, just absolutely depraved. But Describing Lot as righteous, when, when Peter calls him righteous, he does not necessarily mean that Lot was morally perfect. More often than not, when the New Testament describes a person, a human, as righteous, it's a way of describing their standing with God. It means that Lot was right with God, even though he was a sinner, and even though he did some things that were absolutely appalling, he had a relationship with the Lord. He, he was what we could call a righteous sinner. And there is, in particular, one facet of Lot's righteousness that Peter emphasizes most strongly. Look again at verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that, verse 8, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So Peter underlines the fact that Lot was distressed and tormented over the wickedness and lawlessness that surrounded him. And that is a sign of his righteousness. It was a, it was a sign that he was in right standing with God, that when he saw the wickedness and the lawlessness around him, it distressed him and it even tormented him in his soul to see that and to hear about it. So here's what I want to do. I want to use that quality of righteousness, of, of a righteous sinner. Again, we're not trying to pretend that Lot was perfect. So in that, in that sense, Lot's a good case study for us because he, he sinned in ways that absolutely disturb and, and, and should shock us, and yet he's still called righteous. So he's somebody we can look at and say, okay, well... I'm never going to be perfectly like Jesus, but you know maybe I could uh, maybe I could be like that. So, um, three categories of people that I want to give us, and I want you just to try to discern which of these you're most inclined to be like. So I'm, I've come up with a name for each of these kinds of people. The first one I'm going to call conforming. Conforming. This is the person who 
rather than being distressed by the wickedness of the, of the world, they kind of go with the flow of the culture around them. They suppose that if a, if a majority of people think something is right, if a, if a majority of people are not bothered by a certain kind of conduct, then it must not be sinful. It must be okay with God. And a lot of times these people imagine that, that humanity naturally progresses from injustice to justice so that the way to be right is by doing what most people think is right today. And so they'll say things like, come on, man, it's 2020. You know, get with the program. Or you don't want to be on the wrong side of history as if history just naturally moves from less right to more right. So that's the first kind of person, conforming. They just kind of go with the flow of the culture. They, they go with what the majority of people in their time think is right. The second person I'm going to call nostalgic. And this person is the person who was conforming, but now the thing they used to conform to is out of style, right? So they're conforming, but just fast forward a few decades. This is the person who bemoans the way things are today while longing for some elusive good old days. The problem is there has never been an era in this country or in any country when goodness in a biblical sense, has prevailed for everyone and in everyone. So the first person loves the world so much that they don't see how the values of the world are contrary to gospel conduct. Rather than being distressed by the wickedness uh, around them, they approve of it or even participate of it. That's conforming. The second person, nostalgic, engages in a kind of false distress because it looks like they're, it, they look like Lot. They look like they're saying, oh, what's, what's the world come to? But they imagine that what we really need is just to return to the way things were way back then and everything would be fine. The third person I'm going to call callous. Callous. And by the way, when I was coming, I was trying to brainstorm this with Rebecca and saying, okay, what can I call these three people? And then after we came up with... Uh, Conforming, nostalgic, and callous, I said it sure would be nice, nice if, we, if we could make that second one a C. And so we thought well, we could call that one cranky if you want to. So <laughs> you, you just decide if you want to call that one nostalgic or cranky. But the third person is, is callous. This is the person who cares too little about the world in which they live because they don't think it's their problem. Uh, the fact that Lot was distressed by the sin of those around him means that he cared about the people around him. I mean, think about it. If, if Lot didn't love the people around him, he wouldn't have cared. He wouldn't have been distressed. He would have just said, it's not my problem. I'm not the one who's going to be destroyed. You guys are the ones who are going to be destroyed. So the fact that he was distressed by the sin of the people around him means that he loved them. And it can be tempting for us to become numb to the wickedness in the world in which we live because we think of faith only in a personal, private way. So we rejoice at being right with God. I'm thankful that I'm right with God, that I have a relationship with God. And, and I personally seek to live a godly life. And I gather with other believers who try to love the Lord too and try to live godly lives and we worship the Lord together. But we're really not all that bothered by the sin in the world unless it affects me personally, unless it starts to creep in on me and then suddenly I get bothered by it. This is a failure of love, because if we genuinely love people, it ought to bother us that they're going to hell. So, conforming, 
nostalgic callous. I want you just to examine yourself and ask, which one of those three am I most inclined to be like? Which one of those three? I'm not saying that you're always that. And sometimes you might say, well, sometimes I'm number one and sometimes I'm number three or whatever the case may be. By the way, if you don't think you're ever inclined to be any one of those three, I've got a bonus category for you, self-righteous. <laughs> I mean, seriously, if you, if, you, if you say, well, I don't think I ever fall into any of those, then, then you need to think again. Or maybe there's some other category that I haven't thought of yet and you can help me think of it. But the fact of the matter is none of us get that balance right of, of being truly distressed by the wickedness of the world without becoming angry at the people in the world for being sinners and for being lost and, and being cynical about that sort of thing. So we've walked through Peter's argument. Uh, I want us to circle back to the big, big idea that God will judge the ungodly and He will rescue the godly. I'm taking that summary the way straight from the conclusion that Peter draws in verse 9. So in verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, it's if this, if this, if this, if this. So verse 9, nine if all of that's true, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So assuming we believe that to be true, that God is going to judge the ungodly and He's going to rescue the godly, assuming we believe that to be true based on all this evidence that Peter gives us from the Old Testament. The million-dollar question is, what do we do with that truth? How should we then live? Uh, so I want us to consider what our response should be to that truth. So what should our response be to the fact that God is going to judge the ungodly? Well, Peter says that Lot was distressed by it, and he calls Noah a herald of righteousness, which I take to mean that as he was building the ark, Noah also proclaimed the judgment that was coming. And again, it's not difficult to imagine why somebody might have come along and asked him, what are you doing? And until the flood came, there was opportunity to listen and to repent. I mean, what if someone had said to Noah, you know what? I believe that. Can I join you in the ark? Absolutely. There was opportunity for people to, to listen and repent. And in a similar way, until an unbeliever dies or until Jesus returns, there is always an opportunity for them to listen to the gospel and to repent and be saved, which means that right now there may be people who are unrighteous, who are ungodly, who are not in Christ, and if nothing changes, they are destined for destruction and judgment and condemnation. But they can repent. They can put their trust in Jesus and no longer be under judgment, but be one who will be rescued. So our posture toward unbelievers should be one of habitual tenderness, as John Newton put it. So I want to try to summarize our response to this by saying that we should, like Jesus, have compassion on the ungodly and invite them to repent and believe. So there's, there's two components to that response. You know, on the one hand, you could say, well, I just feel sorry, you know, for people who are lost because they're heading for hell and I just feel bad for them. And then we could just do nothing about it, right? That would be kind of like the false teachers who 
refused or denied to, to warn of the judgment that was to come. So we, we have to say on the one hand that lost people are going to act like lost people. Blind people are going to act like blind people. Dead, spiritually dead people are going to act like spiritually dead people. And we shouldn't expect them to act any differently. The question is, do we really desire that the ungodly would repent? Or are we kind of like Jonah, who said, you know what, I'm, I, I know that God's gracious and merciful, and He abounds in steadfast love, and if I go and warn the people of Nineveh that, uh, that God's going to judge them and destroy their city, they'll repent, and if they repent, God will forgive them, and He won't destroy them, and I'd rather them be destroyed. Are there, are, I just, here's, here's a question for you to ask. Are there some people that you've written off? Are there, are there a certain category of people that you just said, you know what, they're too far gone? Or I would rather not, I would rather them not repent because I know that if they do, God will forgive them and I don't want to see them in heaven. Well, if that's your, if that's your heart, then you may not see them in heaven if you catch my drift. Are there some people who, if we're being honest, we don't think they're capable or worthy of being saved? To return to the analogy John Newton used, are, are we like the person who we've had our eyes open and now we're going around beating blind people with a stick? When we hear God say that He's going to judge the ungodly, does that make us gleeful? Or does it make us urgent to warn them and to invite them to come to Jesus? So we need to ask ourselves those hard questions. How should we respond to the fact that God's going to judge the ungodly? And, and second... How should we respond to the fact that God is going to rescue the godly? What should our response be to that? Of course, if we're truly in Christ, we can derive a whole lot of joy and comfort from that truth. But it also invites a bit of self-examination because the truth of the matter is not everyone who professes faith, not everyone who has the outward appearance of godliness is truly saved. There was, there was one morsel in the passage that we read last Sunday that I avoided because I wanted to come back to it today. I knew it would be pertinent to what we were going to read today. I want you to glance back with me at verse 1. Peter said, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who, brought, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction." So I pointed out last week that, that Peter uses the word destruction or destructive three times, and the word he uses there is not just that their lives are going to be messed up, but it's a word that implies eternal, final condemnation, that these people are, are destined for hell. And yet, in verse 1, Peter says that they deny the master who bought them, which sounds like these people are redeemed followers of Christ, bought by the blood of Christ, and yet they're condemned, and they're going to be destroyed on the last day. So what do we make of that? Well, the Bible is very, very clear elsewhere in other passages that when a person truly, genuinely belongs to Christ, they cannot fall away in a final sense. But the Bible is also clear that there are going to be many people who claim the name of Jesus, but who never truly belonged to Him in the first place. In fact, John Newton, the guy who wrote that hymn, Amazing Grace, used to say 
that I think when I get to heaven, I'm going to be surprised by three things. There are going to be some people there who I'm surprised to see them there. I would have never thought they'd be there. There will be some people who I thought would be there who won't be there. And then third, I'll be surprised that I'm there to see Jesus or any of those other people at all. So no one who truly belongs to Jesus can truly finally fall away. But there will be many people who claim to know Jesus, who claim the name of Jesus, who appear godly on the outside, but who never truly belong to Him in the first place. That's what Peter's describing here. These false teachers claimed to have been redeemed by Jesus. They moved in circles of people who had been redeemed, but their teachings and their conduct gave evidence to the contrary. So the takeaway for us is that we have to do what Peter said back in chapter 1, verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. In other words, strive to show that you are saved. That's how we should respond to the fact that God will rescue the godly, that we should strive to show in word and deed that we are saved, that we are godly, that we are righteous in a sense of being right with God through faith in Jesus. It's not about striving to earn anything. It's about striving to show what God has done in your life. If you're listening to the sound of my voice and you're not sure where you stand with God, then I want to sort of stand in the place of Noah this morning and be a herald of righteousness and say that there is coming a day when every single one of us will stand before the one who created us and we will have to give an account. Justice will be be served one way or another. Either the justice against my sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross, or it's going to be poured out on me for all of eternity in hell. The question is, will you stand in your own unrighteousness because you refuse to trust in Jesus and surrender to Him? Or will you be found in Christ, clothed in His righteousness alone, and will you stand faultless before His throne? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to the Word of God And His Word speaks of the certainty of judgment and the certainty of salvation for some and for others. And so we need to examine our hearts this morning to confirm our calling and our election. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for how You warn us and challenge us in Your Word, Lord, that You have not left us to uh, any false assurance, but God, that You warn the ungodly of the judgment that is to come. And that by warning the godly of that judgment, you keep us in faith. You keep us in repentance. And so, Lord, I pray as as David prayed that you would lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And Lord, that uh, for those of us who, who are in Christ, that we would look with pity upon the ungodly and that we would be urgent to Invite them to turn from their sin, to turn from the wrath to come, and to bear the fruit of repentance. And Lord, if there's anyone right now who is listening to my voice who is not in Christ, I pray, Spirit of God, that you would afflict their soul. And uh, Lord, that you would bring them low and humble them before you, that they might turn and find in Jesus a refuge from the judgment that is to come that they would find in Him a shepherd who is willing to open His arms and bring them into safe pasture. 
Lord, would you do that for your grace and for your glory? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.